Now, I'm going to step with you into the, uh, the book of Luke, chapter 1, and I'm going to pray with you first before we do that, because what I'm going to ask God for for you, and I, I hope you would do this along with me yourself, is we're going to ask God to give us a fresh set of eyes as we look at this story, because it's so incredibly familiar to everybody. And the temptation is, like with communion, to let it be very mechanical, and well, I know that, and I'll just kind of tune it out. Well, I hope, and I'm going to pray, that God will give us a fresh heart to understand what's really going on here. So would you pray with me? Let's take, take this to God. Heavenly Father, we come before you as individuals who have um, left things behind that we could be doing this morning, and we've chosen to be here. We've stopped whatever activities were going on in the midst of our week, and however hectic it might have been to get here this morning, we're here now, and we want to be fully present. Father, we've surrendered to you through communion, and we've lifted up your name in song, and all this centers our heart, but what we ask now that you help us to center our mind and our thoughts, that you would focus our attention on your word. God, I ask that you would speak in such a way that we would see this with a fresh set of eyes, what what your word calls eyes to see. And we need ears to hear. And Father, I'll add to that, we need a heart to understand. So that's what I ask for your people. Those whom have gathered here this morning, those who will listen to this on recording, God, I ask that you help us to be fully present in the midst of this teaching. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Your concept of an original Christmas might be a little bit different than scriptures, what the Bible says is an original Christmas. When you have conversation with people out on the street and they talk about, wow, I just would love to have an original Christmas this year with my family. I've heard people say that to me. I'm not sure that they're thinking the same thing that I'm thinking when they say the word original. Most people are thinking Norman Rockwell, family gathered around the Christmas tree singing Christmas carols. I said to one 19-year-old last night after the service, Um, do you know who Norman Rockwell is? And he said, no, some old dead guy probably, right? (laughs) Yeah, he was a famous artist, okay? He died quite a number of years ago, but this is one of his paintings. He was great for capturing Americana. He he captured what went on in American life. So a lot of people, when they think an original Christmas, they think Norman Rockwell. And some individuals would have to go back further than that. They think back, wow, original Christmas, what was it like for families to gather around a piano and sit around a fireplace together? Others would go back to Bethlehem and say, well, there's the original Christmas. Well, true, that was the first Christmas. But to find the origins of Christmas, I want to go with you beyond Bethlehem. I want to step back into the days of eternity because that's where Christmas really originated at. The word origin actually means the beginning of something. And so we understand there's an origin point. There's a point of origination And if there's a point of origination and origin for Christmas, there must be a why as well. We understand that our God is sovereign, right? According to Scripture, God is sovereign. means he rules and controls over everything. He understands the end from the beginning. So with our God, if he's sovereign, he's got a purpose for everything. This is a recurring theme throughout Scripture. You'll see it constantly that God has laid out a plan for everything. He knows the end from the beginning. That's what Scripture tells us. So a sovereign king should know the end from the beginning if he's omniscient, right? 
Well, that's what Scripture tells us. Look with me on the screen. Isaiah 46.10. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Do you see the word maybe up there anyplace? Yeah, I don't either. I look really close. I don't see the word maybe. I will accomplish My purpose has been established. So it stands to reason that he doesn't make things up as he goes along. As things unfold, God doesn't get caught by surprise and say, oh no, I never expected that. That's not your God. He understands the end from the beginning. So here's a few examples of that. This first one is Jesus talking. This comes from Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Speaking of those who are believers, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It goes back into time past. We also understand that we don't understand everything. God says from the foundation of the world, there's certain things that are hidden, things that he has not revealed. Speaking again of Jesus, Matthew 13, 35, I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, we do know for sure that Jesus existed before time began. Jesus and God as one. He transcends time. Here's another example of that. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me, not from the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. So we're talking about eternity past. So in conjunction with all this knowledge that we have of God's activity, outside of the fabric of time, and I know this sounds heady to start out with, but just stay with me for a minute. In conjunction with all this knowledge of God's activity, outside the fabric of time is this additional truth which applies directly to you. God has designed purposes for your life in eternity past, which are playing out now in your lifetime, purposes which transcend time. We see evidence of that in Scripture. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now this sounds like we're going to be addressing the issue of predestination this morning, doesn't it? We're not, okay? This is just to give you an example of where we see that we are part of a much, much larger story. That God has his purposes, which he put in place in motion before time began, which are now being played out in your lifetime. So these passages right here that we're looking at, they tell us that not only does God exist outside of the fabric of time, but that he carries out his activities within this sphere that we're caught up in, the fabric of time, and he wants you, he wants us to be part of those activities. He invites you into his activity. So we understand, and this one is in your notes this morning. I hope you grabbed one of the bulletin when you came in. God opens up the door for you to join him in his work, to be engaged with him in activities. Whether you personally choose to accept it or reject it is up to you. We call that free will. 
That's the human terminology. We associate it with it. But when God comes calling, know that his activity in your life is part of something that he put in motion long ago, and it's being played out now in your lifetime. So all that to say this for this reason. When we discover that the origin of Christmas is not actually found in a barn in Bethlehem, but rather it's rooted in eternity past in the throne room of God, we would say this is consistent with the nature and the character of God, the origin of Christmas. So I'm going to invite you this morning to follow along with me in Luke chapter 1 as we look at one of those dramas unfolding. Over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look through the teenage eyes of Mary and we're going to look through the young teenage eyes of Joseph to see what, this, what took place in their life when God stepped in and intervened. So let's set the stage here. What do we know about Mary? Well, we know that for one She's very humble. She's an introspective person. The scripture says she pondered things that were going on. You'll understand that more in just a little bit. She's submissive. She's very responsive to God's activity in her life. But do not mistake that for being a pushover. This is a determined young woman. She's bold. She takes activity and adventure seriously. She knows God's word. What do we know about her physically? Well, it appears that she's probably got a very bronze color to her skin because she lives in the Middle East. And she's probably got long black hair like most of the Jewish girls did at that time. Probably dark black eyes also, which would really enhance her bright, youthful, white smile. So this young woman who's got these plans going on that we're going to discover in just a minute is probably a teenager because most women were engaged when they were 14 to 15 years of age. Sounds kind of creepy, doesn't it? Okay. Well, that's the case at this period of time. Why? Because the average lifespan was 35 years of age in the first century. Average person was considered old if they made it to age 40. Now, there are certainly examples and examples in the Bible where individuals lived to 65, 70, 75 years of age, but it was normative to die when you were around 40 years of age. And so, therefore, they married much younger. And young people had a great deal more responsibility at this period of time. I remember talking just with my grandfather who told me back in the early 1900s when he was five years old, he would be woken up by his brothers at four in the morning to go outside and milk cows. didn't matter if it was January. Those are responsibilities that were expected of family members in years gone by. So we find this young woman who's probably in the range of 14 years of age, maybe as young as 13, doesn't have her driver's license yet, okay? This is a very young woman, Joseph, who's probably around 17 years of age, most likely can't even grow a beard yet. Looking every day in the mirror, no, there's no hair there. Wants to be older, but they're really, really young. So these individuals are in the Bible, as we understand them, quite young teenagers. And they're being given this huge responsibility. So first of all, what I would like you to do is get out of your mind the image that you might have from the Hallmark greeting cards or all the church artwork that you've ever seen of a woman who's in her early 30s or late 20s with this golden halo around her head wearing a blue robe that's nicely hemmed with gold trim because that's not the case. She's living in a backwater town called Nazareth. 
maybe 250 to 300 inhabitants at the time, probably wearing very drab clothing, a fairly poor family from what we understand in Scripture, not super educated, but this is who God chooses to use, and the people in the community know her. Now, you understand, obviously, if you're familiar with the story, that at the point that we step into this, she's engaged to be married. So that means she's got all the plans of an engaged young woman. The bridal magazines are arriving in the mail every single day, okay? Mom and dad have already sent out the postcards with save the date on it. She's negotiating with the caterers. And Mary, at this point, has no idea what's about to unfold in her life. Because God predetermined in eternity past that he was going to step in and intercept her life. So beyond the boundaries of time, we understand according to scripture that an angel warrior steps up to the throne of God and he's given specific directives that he is to step beyond the fabric of eternity through the fabric of time into our world and deliver a message from God directly to this young teenage girl living in backwater Israel in the first century A.D. And he's being dispatched right from the throne room of God. Go with me to Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, and you'll be right where I'm at. If you don't have your Bibles this morning, you'll see it up on the screen as well. Luke 1, 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Well, the sixth month of what? What do you, you want to ask yourself, first of all, why does it say the sixth month? Well, if you're familiar with the story or you go back later today and read chapter one in the beginning parts, you'll see that Mary's aunt, Elizabeth, has become pregnant. And it's the sixth month of her pregnancy. God is active in her life as well. So in the sixth month, of the pregnancy of her relative, Elizabeth. We see that this angel Gabriel shows up. Now, we're not going to talk too much about angels today. I'm going to get into that next week when we look at Joseph's life. But here's what we know about Gabriel for sure. Scripture says he's an archangel, meaning he stands in the throne room of God before God's very presence. And he's a warrior angel. And he's been given this responsibility now, here at New Hope, we do believe in angels. There are holy angels and there are fallen angels. Holy angels are those who are surrendered to God and doing what he commands them to do. Fallen angels are demons. That's where the association comes from. But we won't talk about that today too much. Now, we understand that this holy angel has been sent from God. He's been given a directive. And here's what I want you to understand. The timing of God's activity in your life as it plays out on a weekly, a daily, a monthly, an annual basis, always has eternal dimensions to it. When God steps in and intervenes in your life, it's rooted in his plans, and God doesn't make things up as he goes. So we understand, just like with Mary, there was a specific moment in time when God said, now, this is when you're going to go and give her this information. Go with me to verse 27, because we know he's being sent. Verse 27, sent to a virgin engaged to a man who was, whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So we see right away, we've got a virgin who's engaged. What does it mean to be engaged in the first century? 
Well, first of all, I want to be very specific. This word virgin has no other meaning other than this. She is one who has not had sexual relations of any kind. She's never known a man. She's pure. And so she's engaged. What does it mean to be engaged in the first century? Well, here's the literal word that's used in the Greek language, ministuo. Engaged means to give a souvenir, much like we would do today when we exchange rings. A groom proposes to a bride and gives an engagement ring. So we see this same word used here in in the engagement, that something has been exchanged. However, in the first century, a marriage is much more significant in the engagement process than what it is today because something is about to unfold as a result of the exchange of the souvenir. In the first stage... The father of the groom in a Hebrew wedding will go to the father of the bride and will tell the father of the bride, my son has a desire to engage your daughter in marriage. They begin to negotiate. If the father of the bride agrees to the wedding and agrees to the terms, they begin to negotiate a price. Know this, the greater the desire the groom has for the bride, the greater the price is for the bride, the bride price, and we're talking literal money. So that puts it in context when you understand that Jesus was talking about the price that the groom was willing to pay for the church, Jesus paying the ultimate bride price when he died for the church. So at this point, when the groom or the groom's father goes to the father of the bride and begins to negotiate a contract, there's money that's exchanged, and it's called a mohar, And so when this mohar is given, this is amount of money, a sum of money that works like an insurance policy. So the father of the bride takes this money to replace the expenses he might incur by losing his daughter who's a worker in his household. And it works like an insurance policy in this way. The engagements were always 12 months long. And during this 12-month period of time, the bride was set apart from her groom. They had zero physical contact. They might see each other in the village, but they could not have physical contact. There's not even any hugging or hand-holding going on during this period of time. And if the groom became dissatisfied with her during that period of time, it had to be broken by a legal divorce That's how seriously they took this negotiation of the contract. We see the bride price referred to in the book of Exodus. You'll see this on the screen. Exodus 22, 16, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. So from the moment the money's handed over, the bride is set apart exclusively for the husband and for no other. They are legally married at this point. It's a binding relationship. And during this period of time, it was the groom's responsibility to go out and begin to prepare a place for them to dwell. Do you see that again when Jesus said, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you, and when I am done, I will come again and receive you unto myself? That's coming from the same imagery right here. So we understand the virgin's name was Mary. We've got a common name in a common place with this miraculous event, and the angel's about to talk. Go with me to verse 28. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Now understand, this is not a hallway conversation. He's not just saying, Hey, 
okay? He's not just showing up and saying hi to her. This is a greeting like she's never heard before. I've never had someone say to me, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Have you? you ever? One of the guys after the service last night came up to me and said that just so I could never say that again. He said, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Took away that privilege from me. Okay, so I've never had anyone say that to me prior to last night. So she's perplexed by this statement. That's the word that's used here. Let's look at the root word for it. The Greek language says it's diatrosso. Diatrosso, it's the root word for distress. She's distressed over this greeting. Why? Well, not every day an angel shows up, obviously, first of all. But normally, men didn't engage women in a conversation in the first century, women that they didn't know. We don't know how he appeared to her. But that's not what sets her back. We're told that this statement distressed her. It's caused her to be perplexed. The angel's words troubled her. And it's causing her to ask questions internally. When God intervenes in your life, it immediately causes, because of human nature, questions. You begin processing, what's going on here? What does he mean? How how is God with me? How am I greatly graced by God? And she kept pondering this according to the last part of verse 29. There's the word for it, dialogizomai. It's the root word for dialogue. She's processing in her mind, what's going on? I don't understand this. What is, he, what is this meaning of this? The Lord is with me, greetings favored one. I've found that many times when God steps in and he intends to do something in my life, You'll find this to be true in your life as well. Maybe you already have. It makes no sense. You can't put the pieces together right away. There's like missing pieces of the puzzle. But eventually, looking back on it, you can see the commonness of God's golden thread weaving right through the middle. But at the very beginning, it makes no sense at first. But because God can see the end from the beginning, that causes us to even more have to lean into him. Now look at this statement. The Lord is with you. That is not a wish. He's not saying, may the Lord be with you. He's saying, this is a statement. God's mighty power is present in your life, Mary. Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten who's on your side? God is with you. And the angel's reminding her of this. God is with you. Now, this really scares her, and obviously it startles her, and the angel recognizes it. Go with me to verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, For you have found favor with God. He must have sensed that she's got fear because she's obviously showing it. So he says, do not be afraid. And that's just like your God. He's always encouraging us. That's God's nature. And it's necessary. Why? Because she's about to be asked to do something no one else has ever been asked to do before. No one else in history. Not since then. She's got to be encouraged. And he tells her, you have found favor with God. So I want you to notice the issue here is not Mary's particular goodness. It's God's choosing. Just like in Genesis 6, 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Mary found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we're not focusing on Mary. We're not focusing on her personal goodness. She's obviously a good person. But the emphasis is on God's sovereign choice to use her. And I want you to remember this, finding favor with God, in other words, being in the place where God can use you, 
does not always equate to getting the assignment that you want. Does that sink in? Finding favor with God doesn't always mean you're going to get the assignment that you want. A young bride engaged to be married doesn't need someone showing up telling her that she's going to have a premarital pregnancy. That wasn't necessarily the assignment that she wanted. And she needed to be reminded that she's found favor with God and that she shouldn't be afraid. Why? Because he's about to drop an atom bomb on her life. She's going to hear something she never thought in her lifetime she would hear. Go with me to verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. You will conceive in your womb, young teenage girl, living in backwater Nazareth in the middle of the desert, Israel. Mary, you're going to have a baby, and not just any baby. You're going to name him Jesus. And here is where your world changes. When God steps in and redirects your path and you find yourself having to do a complete 180, God has intervened in the midst of her life because he predetermined in eternity past that this was going to take place. When God gives the assignment, you're going to know it in your life because it's a God-sized assignment something you couldn't possibly do on your own, something only God can do. And that's what Mary is experiencing here, something that never in her wildest dreams should she have imagined. And it requires God to do it. So in verse 31, he says to her, you shall name him Jesus. We know that name. It's very familiar to us today. It was very familiar in the first century. Why? Because it's the name Joshua the name Yehoshua. As a matter of fact, if you go to Matthew's version of this story, when the angel talked to Joseph, you see the angel saying to Joseph, you will name him Jesus and then giving an explanation. What's the explanation? Because he will save his people from their sins. See, the name Joshua, Yehoshua, means salvation is from God. So she understands immediately there's a purpose in this child's life. God is naming the baby in advance. There's no need to have an ultrasound here. This is going to be a boy, and you're going to name him Jesus. Go with me to verse 32, because the angel now steps it up a notch, and he makes very clear who this boy is going to be. Verse 32, he will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end, says the angel Gabriel to the teenage girl living in backwater Israel in the first century AD. One dispatch from the throne room of God to tell a teenager this information. For the warrior angel who stands in the presence of God, there is no doubt in his mind that everything that he's just stated is going to happen because there's no maybes with God. This is a done deal, Mary. This will happen. I want you to notice the five wills. As you see them up on the screen in that verse, circle them in your Bible because this is right from the voice of God. He will be megas, Mary unqualified greatness. He will be great, and he will be titled with the name that is above every name. 
What is the name? He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. Do you know there's only two times in the entire Bible when that title is used? And they're both from angels. Gabriel himself, right here in this statement, the Son of the Most High, meaning literally the Son of God, and another angel who confronted Jesus in Mark chapter 6 as a demon and said, what do we have to do with you, son of the most high God? And he collapsed at Jesus' feet. See, the angels from heaven recognize exactly who Jesus is. And this angel has declared it. He is the son of the most high. He's also going to be the one who succeeds in carrying out the throne of Israel. We're told that specifically. A legitimate member of the royal line of King David. So this is a fulfillment of a promise that God made to David, the king, many hundreds of years before, that there would be one who would live on his throne that would endure forever. And as a result of that, he will reign over Israel. And what's the last he will? He will possess a kingdom that will never end. That's right from God. So we see a promise of a name, a promise of his greatness, a promise of God's fulfillment of Scripture from the Old Testament to the people Israel, and a promise that his kingdom that you're a part of will never come to an end. And here's what I really want you to notice. The emphasis is on the greatness of Jesus, not Mary. And that's a mistake that many people make. Now, when it comes to Mary and this individual that we see in Scripture, individuals usually go to one of two extremes. In some places, they exalt her to the point where they actually worship her and pray to her and make statues of her and bow down before her. That's a mistake. Mary is not God. She is a human like you and I, created by God, whom God used to fulfill his purposes. But the other extreme is this. Individuals completely dismiss her and say, well, we don't want to go there because she's been made into such an icon. We'll just dismiss her. And that's a mistake as well. She deserves esteem and she deserves credit, but she is not God. You should not be praying to her. You pray to God, whom is what Jesus is. So the emphasis from the angel's very mouth is on Jesus and his greatness. So Mary, in proper response, verse 34, says this, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? This is a legitimate question. She obviously understood what he's saying to her. This is gonna happen, but how? She's not challenging him, she's mystified. You need to remember that when God intercedes in your life and you feel like there's some God activity going on, it's okay to ask questions. It doesn't make you an unbeliever. You're just looking for clarification. Mary's looking for clarification here. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever is this. An unbeliever rejects what they think they understand, and they willingly say, no way. A believer accepts what we don't fully understand, but what we do understand, we say, I'm in, I got it. I totally understand what's going on there. Jesus will save me. That's the difference. So don't be afraid to ask questions. So she's asking a legitimate question. How, since in the Greek, this is the way it literally says, I know no man. I'm a virgin. How could this possibly be? And I think this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible, church, for this reason. By the clear testimony of Scripture, Jesus was born of a virgin. It's never happened before. He's conceived by God. Mary recognizes it's not possible. 
So it's very clear that Jesus and his disciples and the early church fathers, even his enemies understood that he was declaring himself as God because he's conceived of God. Look with me on the screen, John 5, 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So we can't take away that leg of the stool and still have a theology to build our Christian faith on. Jesus was born of a virgin, miraculously conceived by God. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit, this is in response to her question, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Here's how, Mary, I'll explain it to you. God is about to do something in your life that he planned from the foundations of the world. And he's going to overshadow you. And there's something very specific here in that word because it's scented, church. It's scented with a fragrant image because that word overshadowed has a significant meaning. The first time you read it, you want to think of going all the way back to the book of Genesis when God showed up. In Genesis 1 says, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. That's that word, overshadowed. But then it's used again when Moses built a tabernacle and when David and Solomon built a temple. God's presence poured down upon the temple. And we're told, and the holy of holies in the center of the temple, God's present dwelt. That's the imagery of overshadowed. So here's the definition for it on the screen. Epitzkadzo. And it says literally to cast a shade upon, to envelop in a haze of brilliancy. Mary, your womb is about to become the holy of holies. God's presence is going to dwell among you. You're going to be overshadowed by the power of the Most High. And this brilliancy will encapsulate you. And the life that's resulting from this enveloping cloud is the Son of God. The God who created the laws of the universe can certainly overwrite the laws of the universe. And that which is conceived in her is original has its origins in ancient times, before time, in eternity. And by the way, Mary, do you need further proof? Look at the proof the angel gives. Go to verse 36. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Do you notice there's a nickname? People called Elizabeth names. She's called barren. The word is stego. Hey, there goes stego. There's stego. Stego's going to the store. She's called barren. What is stego? Stego is a Greek word, and it means to build a roof over. So this individual who's called stego, literal meaning for this is to cover up with silence. That's been Elizabeth's history to this point. But God is doing the impossible in her life. Because of his miraculous power, she's already pregnant, Mary. She's in her sixth month. God has already done the impossible. Why? Go with me to verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Have you forgotten that? When God says nothing, 
he means nothing. You can underline that 5,000 times in your Bible. Nothing is impossible with God. I think we've forgotten that. Many individuals dismiss that and think they need to give up. But the writer of Genesis, Moses, actually said this himself. Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? From your job to your marriage to your relationship with your friends? Can God take care of those issues? Nothing is impossible with God. Don't be guilty of putting limits on what God can do and cannot do in your life or the lives of those who surround you. God can do anything. And we could end right here, but I'd like to take just two more verses with you so that you see what a proper response looks like to God's activity in your life. We can put everything into the practical realm now. Watch what happens. Verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word, And the angel departed from her. Now listen to this. She listens to the enormity of what God is about to do beyond anything anyone could have ever possibly imagined. And yet this precious young woman, teenage bride, gives up all her plans, all her ideas of what she wanted to do, her strategies for her life, and she welcomes God's activity into her life, even though it wasn't her plan and it certainly wouldn't work out the way she wanted it to. She uses the phrase, the bond slave of the Lord. Other translations have the phrase, handmaiden. It's the title given to the lowest of the lowest of the female slaves in the house of the master, meaning her body, her mind, Her soul, her spirit, everything is completely surrendered to God. Mary is submitting to God's plans with a conscious knowledge of the shame that a premarital pregnancy will bring upon her life. In the midst of this setting in the first century AD, knowing that her husband could easily divorce her, this characterizes a genuine believer. Someone who is willing to submit to God no matter what. And church, this is where real faith really begins to show itself. In the hours and the days that clicked off after this visit, because the angel's gone, how many times do you think she said, wait, did I really hear that? Somebody's just messing with me. Did I really hear God say that? Maybe I had a bad piece of pizza. I've thought that myself. God, you're not really up to this, are you? She's accepting the sacrifice in the midst of the wake of the unknown trouble. And yet there's unknown blessings. Let's see what Mary does in response. Here's where we're going to end, verse 39. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in slow motion to the hill country to a city of Judah. Is that what it says? No, as a matter of fact, the word that's used there for hurry is spuedo. It's where we get the root word speedo, like the designers of swimsuits. There's a mental image you don't want, okay? But that's where it comes from. Spuedo means with speed. She didn't waste any time. We don't even know if she told Joseph. She just got up and took off. She's on a pace. Why? 
Not only because I believe she wanted the move of confirmation in her life. Wait, is this older woman really pregnant? Did God really do this? And she discovered the story when she got there. If you go on and read the story later, it's an amazing unfolding. But also, I believe there's a second reason here. Elizabeth would serve as a source of encouragement in her life. A godly older woman to walk alongside her, to encourage her. We understand that she spent somewhere around three months with Elizabeth. So we've got someone who's not only a confirmation of God's activity, but also a source of encouragement. And it is critical in your life when you begin to sense that God is on the move, doing something in your life, that you entrust that information with a spiritually mature brother or sister in Christ. Someone whom you can trust the information with as you move forward because they will encourage you in your walk with God. So the last part in your notes, this is where I want to end this morning. What does a proper response to God look like in your life? It's not going to appear on the screen. So don't look for it up there. It's in your notes this morning. And just listen along if you don't have the notes. First of all, number one, you've got to be in a place where you can listen. And I'm as guilty as anybody. We live in the world of iPads, iPods, smartphones, CNN, Fox News. There's lots of distractions going on. Lots of things to interrupt and take away our capacity to hear the voice of God. You've got to be in his word, church. You've got to be reading what he said to you to look for him speaking, to understand what he wants to say to you. And when you think you're sensing that, don't be afraid to ask. God, I need some clarification here. I would like confirmation. And that requires you spending time in prayer. The third one's pretty critical. Respond. You've got to respond. You've got to have that act of obedience. That's where obedience kicks in. Once you've confirmed it, you better take action. And fourth one, walk together with someone who is a spiritually mature brother or sister, someone who can help encourage you in your life. Because the timing of God's activity in your life is always rooted in eternity, eternal dimensions in which he's trying to carry out his plan. So your responding to God's timing in your life is crucial. You don't see the angel showing up and talking to Mary, telling her this great plan that is going to unfold in her life, and then she says, you know, this isn't really a good time for me. I'm engaged. I'm going to get married. Um, It's kind of a big deal. Why don't you check back with me in 12 months? 14 maybe? No. She responds at the moment she knows what to do when God's showing her what to do. Young ladies that are here this morning, Mary is an incredible role model for you to look to. You're looking for a woman in Scripture to look to? Study this young woman who set herself apart for God's purposes. It doesn't mean that she's not carrying on with life, but she's really understanding what it means to be fully surrendered to God. Now, some of you are going to look at this story and you're going to think, I'm damaged goods. There's no way God's going to use me like this. It's not possible. I'm here to tell you otherwise. I want you to understand that God sees you through the eyes of Jesus Christ. You are seen by God just as holy as he sees Mary. That may sound like sacrilege to you, but under the authority of Scripture, it's true. If you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, if you belong to Jesus, when God sees you, he sees you as holy 
You're not damaged goods in God's eyes. He can use you. You can't find too many people less qualified than a young teenage girl living in backwater Israel with a very limited education. But she's in a place where she's fully surrendered. You understand that your God specializes in weakness? He says that. In my weakness, in your weakness, I will be strong. So God works through weak vessels. So God determined from the foundations of the world that he wanted to work through this young woman. And I want to point out to you this last thing. What was the ministry? Not the job, not the occupation. What was the ministry that God gave to Mary? To be a wife and a mom. What a great calling upon her life. God chose this young teenage girl to be yielded to his purposes. And by the way, she got to be the mom to James, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And she got to be the mom of Jude, one of the authors of a book of the Bible. And she got to see the resurrection of the King of Kings on Easter morning. And she got to see the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Pretty good resume, huh? Great thing for a young teenage girl who totally surrendered her life to God. You think at the end of her life, this young woman looked back and said, man, I really wish I would have carried out my plans. They were way better than God's. No, there's no way. Someone who surrendered and willing to be used. God has a calling on your life, an opportunity for you to engage him. What he's waiting for is for you to hear and respond to him. That's what I want to pray with you about right now because it all begins with relationships. So would you bow with me? Let's pray together that God will help seal these things in our heart, the reality of the truth that you've just heard. Father, I believe there's individuals in this auditorium that are even really questioning what I just said, if they can be used or not. But your word confirms that you specialize in using weak people. You use the strong and the weak. But you seem to specialize in the weak, Father. First of all, God, I ask that you would confirm in the hearts of individuals here today that you're willing. But it begins with a relationship. And so for any who don't know the name of Christ in their life, God, I ask that you would start there and bring that sense of need. But for the many who fill this auditorium who are already believers... God, I ask that you would remind them as this week goes on, even as this day goes on, as they walk out to their car and get their keys out, that you want to work through us. And from the foundations, before the foundations of the world, you had purposes and plans for us. God, help us to understand what those are so that we would fulfill what you've called us to do. Your word promises that you will restore the wasted years. God, I ask that you would do that among your people. Help us to realize what you're calling us to do and therefore in our response to you, to be bold. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hope you have a powerful week in Jesus Christ.